I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is lynching in America. You are listening to part two of our episode on lynching in America. So if you're brand new and just tuning in, make sure to go back and listen to part one. We'll begin this episode with an interview at Goatman's Bridge discussing the Lamont Stowers Jones case. And then we'll take some time to lament. And then we'll end the episode with an interview of Lamont's parents, Amy and Lerman, about their entire experience. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Let's stand over here in the shade for a second. I'm just going to kind of set the stage and then we'll walk in a little bit deeper. Yeah. Goatman's Bridge has a, a legendary history. So the legend goes that there was a man named Oscar Washburn, a black man named Oscar Washburn, who in the, the 30s was lynched by the KKK from this bridge. Historians have all desperately tried to find factual evidence of that. There is no factual evidence um, or historical evidence to substantiate the claims. But what we do know is that this area was permeated by violent Klan activity during um, that time and, and for years well earlier on. So we also know that legendary histories evolve out of truths, right? So while that story in and of itself may not be the actual facts, um, that evolved out of the area's history. That said, all the kids associate this bridge as Goatman's Bridge. Supposedly, um, you know, Goatman is is the the reoccurring spirit of Oscar Washburn lynched, and that in and of itself speaks to this this victim being turned into a demon. Hmm. So even in even a lynching victim is criminalized and demonized mm-hmm. in their own death, in their own, in their own story of murder and, and violence, uh, racialized violence. Even in their death, they can't be redeemed. They can't be a victim. They have to be a criminal. Sorry. Well. So I think that's really relevant and, and something yeah. to speak of. So that said, too, black kids don't come here. This is a place where white kids come where white people come. You might see some pictures of, of that, but for the majority. Um, black kids know the story of this bridge. It's not a place where black kids hang out. So let, let's move a little bit so we don't get eaten alive. I'll tell you that the narrative, the official narrative given by authorities, Mont was arrested in April of 2018. Uh, he was hanging out with some older individuals uh, who were white. One of them was white. Uh, they were both adults. Mont was only 17 at the time. I want to stop right here for just a moment, briefly. Mont was only 17 at the time. Uh, he had was hanging out with these these kids, these older uh, individuals. They stopped at a pawn shop. The older individuals went in and pawned some items. Mont was with them and seen on the camera. Uh, keep in mind, Mont didn't have an ID. Was not participating in any of the activities. Turns out, the items that were pawned were stolen. Um, and so video footage later accessed by authorities, Mont was seen on that footage, identified. Um, when he was informed that authorities were looking for him, he willingly went and spoke to authorities, turned himself in to let them know, oh, no, 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 hey, I, I didn't have anything to do with this. He was then interrogated without his parents, without an attorney, and charged. That was Mont's entrance into the justice system, quote-unquote justice system. That is what got him to the courthouse on November 19th, 2018, on that Monday morning. He had gone the Friday prior to check in with his probation officer. He passed a drug test. He went in Monday morning to check in with his probation officer and was then told he needed to go over to the Denton County Courthouse to set up his payments for his fines. Lerman, his father, dropped him off. He's seen on video footage going into the courthouse. He's seen going up the stairs. He talks to uh, the... The uh, folks there in the courthouse, we know because they call the references he lists on his paperwork. 
Then the security footage, supposedly, we still haven't been allowed to see it. The parents still have not been allowed to see it. Supposedly, the security footage shows him getting into a white Impala. The license plate of that car is not identified in any of the police reports. Interesting. Strange. They refuse to release the video footage and let us see it. Um, he is seen getting into the back seat of that car. And that's the last time that he's seen. Supposedly, the official narrative is that car belonged to an indi- a black male who drove him here with some other children who were already in the car. They drove around town, smoked weed. First, it was said that they participated in, in smoking heroin, uh, weed laced with heroin. Then it was supposedly Mont had done that. He told those kids he'd done it ahead of time. All these different narratives, right? Then they supposedly arrive here. So I point this out because... In speaking to Mont's probation officer that Monday morning, Mont's probation officer told Lerman, Mont's father, that Mont was very, um, you know, awoke by his experience, realized that he needed to make better decisions about who he spent his time with, how we ended up in that situation, making better choices about who he associated himself with. And the family talked about those things all the way on the car ride to the courthouse. And so the official narrative is then Mont left the courthouse and the first thing he did is came here and he walked past this sign right here. No jumping or diving from the bridge, $500 fine. So this child who has already been implicated in a crime he didn't commit, been thrown into the justice system for a crime he didn't commit, has jumped through hoops to get himself out of that situation. His parents have been reaffirmed by authorities that their child is doing all the things he's supposed to do to amend that situation. And yet we're to believe that then the first thing he does when he leaves the courthouse is come here and walk past a sign that says, if you jump from this bridge, you'd be breaking the law. And then he proceeds to that bridge and in 45 degree weather, removes all of his clothing in a spur of the moment. But in that spur of the moment, then decides to fold that clothing. As the mother of a 17-year-old child, I can tell you, that's a lie. Because my child does not fold his clothing. And even when he does attempt to, it doesn't look... It's, you know. Yeah. You don't spur the moment, decide to take your clothes off, then fold them before jumping off of a bridge. So that's another thing I'd like to point out. According to witnesses, Mont climbed up and stood on the rail and then jumped off before they could stop him. He didn't just jump over the rail, he climbed up and stood on the rail. Well, let's look at the railing of this bridge. I'm five foot three. So when I stand at this bridge, this would be the uh, area where he would have supposedly jumped. And I'd like you to look at this. Does that look like something you'd want to jump into? No, not at all. Not at all. Now, you'll hear stories. There are kids who have come during the summer and jumped off this bridge. When the water is moving, and at times it can be moving during high rain seasons, it looked like this at that time. We can pull the data and the reports and see all the reports show that it was documented as not moving. Now, I'm five foot three. This this is about four and a half feet. Sound about right? Mm -hmm. So we're to believe that he stood up and balanced on a a one-and-a-half-inch metal bar and then talked with his friends for a while before he decided to jump into that murky, stagnant, green, disgusting water in 45-degree weather at 11.30 in the morning. It's absurd. It's obviously not truth to anyone with common sense. Another interesting fact is... um, Mott's family was originally told that he was found much further downstream. That's what they were told on scene. But the game warden's report provides exact coordinates where Mott's body was supposedly found. And those coordinates are right there. Right off the shoreline, as a matter of fact. Yet it took them 24 hours to find him. With divers. With drones in the water in water no less than 12 feet. It's clearly not true. It's clearly not true. You're pointing like 10 feet away from the bridge. Correct. It's clearly 
not true. Um, just coming out here and, and witnessing that, and another thing that is disturbing is when I came out here after the murder, um, this bridge was covered in supremacist graffiti. Mm. After I came out and took pictures of all of it, 24 hours later I returned again and it was all covered up. Not all of the graffiti, only the graffiti related to white supremacy and covered up by local authorities as evidenced by the fact that when they did it over there on that side of the bridge, they did it with paint that matched the concrete trying to make it smooth in. And again, I reiterate the fact that it was only the graffiti referencing white supremacy. Mm. Mont was murdered here. Anyone with the ability to look at basic facts would be able to know that, to see that. And authorities were aware of the fact that there were supremacist activities happening here. They're aware of the history here. They're aware of these things. They're aware of the fact that witnesses lied, that statements didn't make sense. But they're obviously aware of a lot of other things because they really went out of their way to cover up these facts, to create an alternative narrative. Why were Mont's clothes folded and placed on the bridge? Because they were placed here after the fact. Yeah. Because his body was deposited here. Mont's body in the autopsy report details that he was recovered wearing white underwear. Mont didn't own white underwear. His mother knows that. She's the one who buys them, who folds them, who washes them. Mont didn't own white underwear. Hmm. Why was he recovered in underwear that weren't his own? And these are things that the local authorities refuse to address. They refuse to acknowledge. Uh, for instance, the Texas Rangers report acknowledges in one of his reports, there's a, a, a one sentence blurb that at one point, the vehicle that Mont was in with these supposed kids as they're traveling around town, they pulled into a gas station here off of 35 headed north in the opposite direction of this bridge, two miles north of here. And it says, it mentions um, the, the kids were playing a game where one of them would be, Mont was in the trunk of the car and got out of the trunk at the gas station and ran and they were playing a game where they would chase them down and catch them and put them back in the trunk. But it says uh, a very strange statement, but I asked the kids if authorities ever uh, asked them about these activities and they said no. So here we have information that apparently... Now, why is that in the report, first of all? Well, likely because there's video evidence on surveillance footage from that gas station. So this was a cover-up to acknowledge the existence of that footage in case it ever came back up and to explain it. But what it tells us is at some point, this child whose suspicious death we're investigating was placed in the trunk of a vehicle. And that law enforcement knows that. And law enforcement knows that. They know that the parents are saying, you found him in white boxers, he doesn't own white boxers. He, in a supposedly high state, had an impromptu decision in 45 degree weather to remove his clothing. But then he's capable of balancing on a, on a one and a half inch metal base, four and a half feet in the air off of the side of a, a metal trellis bridge, which you hear it knocking. You can't balance on this and then jump in then swim around and then all of a sudden go underwater off the shore while three children watch. And we hear this play out on 911. Well, let's talk about the 911 call. The 911 call that we were finally able to get after six months of open records requests. Oh, we're sorry, our system didn't get the information to you correctly. Oh, we're sorry, it was, it was this mistake, it was this. Finally, after the NWCP begins to put in requests, we get it. It's an edited call in two parts. The beginning of the call where you would hear the caller identify themselves by name and their location, omitted. The beginning of the call where the person would explain where they're at, omitted. Interestingly enough, we hear on dispatch, this call being transferred, we hear the dispatcher talking and she references a near drowning incident. Not drowning in, in place. She's not sending help for a drowning in place, for a near drowning incident. And we hear these children in the background saying things like, I can't see him, get him. 
get him out. But, quite frankly, I don't think that call had anything to do with this. I don't believe that call was associated with this incident. I think it was a call that... Or maybe it was. If it's a near-drowning incident, perhaps it was associated. But if it was, it wasn't associated with the narrative we received. Um, why would they omit the first part of the call? Why don't we get to know who made that 911 call so we can hear that it matches who we're told made that 911 call? Why don't we get to hear the initial narrative explaining why they're making that 911 call? So the report already gives the name of somebody who is supposed to have made the call. And then they omit it. But then they omit it from the call so that you can't hear a confirmation. Correct. And then when I asked for surveillance, when I asked for body cam footage, they um, went and they've resisted everything we've asked for. Their immediate response has been a letter to the attorney general's office to avoid. So instead of an attempt to provide transparency mm -hmm. and just provide whatever information they could and say, however, this information we're concerned there might be a conflict, we're going to have to ask for an opportunity. You know, their immediate response is to try to get a ruling from the attorney general to not have to provide it. Every single thing we've asked for. There's so much hiding for what's supposed to be an accidental death. For an accidental death. Why not... If, if they really want this fam, if they if they want this family to, to let it go, which they sure seem to want, why wouldn't they go out of their way to do everything in their power to let this family know we really have done everything? This really is what we think happened. Why wouldn't they want to reaffirm that narrative with as much factual-based evidence as possible? Why go out of the way to cover up evidence to to make it difficult? Why, why make it more difficult to understand, you know? Mm. Um, anyone who comes out to this bridge and stands here, like we're doing right now, knows that the boy, Mont Stowers Jones, who wouldn't wade into the water when he went fishing with his dad, when his hook got caught, because he didn't like the feeling of the slimy mud underneath his feet. Anyone who comes to this bridge and stands here knows that he didn't jump into this water. He didn't accidentally drown. Mont was murdered and his body was deposited into this water after the fact. And local authorities know that. And they covered it up for the sake of... Protecting someone or someone's... Right. Protecting Denton from a story about a racially motivated murder. At the end of the day, that's what it comes down to is narrative control. We will not have a story about how a black boy was killed at a site notoriously associated with lynching and hate crime. We will not have that story here. Therefore, we will do whatever it takes to cover it up, even at the expense of truth justice and transparency. That's what happened here. Mont is Oscar Washburn. Mont is the lynching victims that were removed from jail cells in Denton County in the 1920s while police officers abandoned their positions long enough to go put their white hoods on and remove them and enact their own justice. Karen, um, you know, I know that we have the interview with the family and the, the next part of this episode, but, you know, I feel like as a white person, a, a lot of this is, is super heavy and it, it can seem daunting. And honestly, it kind, of, it kind of feels a little yucky. Like, oh, this is really uncomfortable and this is weighty. And I don't, I don't like to stay in, un I like want to be happy. You know, like I'm bent to want to not stay sad or think about bad things. So I know that we're gonna provide some, some like practical things for people, but what's something that we can do right now, maybe you can introduce um, something that we can do right now to, to help us you know, with what do we do next now that we know that this happened in our country and now that we know it happened a couple miles from most of us, what's, what, can, what, what are we gonna do? What can we do? Yeah, it's so heavy to recognize that this is part of the American story. And our patriotism from a young age trains us to want to have a view of America that's just good, this city on a shining hill. But if that narrative isn't true, 
if we don't actually fight to make that narrative true, if we willfully look away from the brokenness of our country, past and present, in order to pretend like it's good, then that's not real patriotism. That's like allowing our country to stay in a sick and unhealthy place and being unwilling to fight for it to actually be just and fair liberty for all. And so I think a big part of what we need to do is just be honest, be honest with our own biases, our own desire to look away and to just like live in the fiction that America is healthy. And out of love for America and for what this country could be for our children and our children's children, we need to look at our past and our present of racial injustice and we need to deal with it. And I think part of dealing with it, a part of what we need to do first for that is just to grieve, to just let ourselves feel the sadness of all of this that has happened and continues to happen. And as a white person, like you mentioned, we tend to want to just look away because there are so many happy things we can look at in life. We can surround ourselves with material goods. We can look at TikTok and YouTube videos of kittens and we can pretend like we don't live in a world that is so full of broken stories. But then that, that insulates us from actual reality and it, it prevents us from doing anything to actually fix it and make it right. It, it, we need justice in our country. So let's start out with just grieving. We're going to take a minute here and we're just going to read some of the stories from America's past of some of the lynchings that our country, our government, our uh, cities, our local governments, our uh, law enforcement, that we are churches, that we are complicit in. I'm not saying that you as an individual white person are guilty. I think a lot of times people respond and they want to defend themselves like, oh, I didn't do it, I wasn't there. I'm saying that we collectively in our institutions, in our churches, in our nation, we are complicit in this and we need to grieve that collectively. So don't look away, don't defend yourself. This isn't an attack. This is part of the grieving process, part of the entrance into healing is to, to listen to these stories that we're going to read and just let yourself be sad by the reality of what our country, what we have done. And I'd also just like to add, if I could, um, these stories that you read are empowering and I'm, I'm glad that you're, it's important that we connect the past to the present. Um, so that we can look to a better future. The Me Too movement, you know, is all about listening to women, believing women, listening to women. And if there's one message I could share with the white community, it is listen to black voices. Listen to the black people in your community, to communities of color, indigenous populations. Um, listen to the oppressed. Don't drown it out. Don't listen. Listen to those who are telling you their stories. Because if we don't listen to the stories, they don't become validated. If they don't become part of the overall narrative. We can't rely on our evening news to tell us the stories of the oppressed in our communities. We have to seek them out. That's why they're oppressed voices. That's why we call them oppressed. They are not the loudest voices. So not only do we have to listen, we have to seek them out. We have to find those stories. So I would encourage those who are privileged enough to seek out those voices. And I just want to give you guys a warning. Some of these stories are not just hard to hear, but they're actually... Um, like if you are squeamish, if you have kids with you, um, some of these get really dark and gruesome. Um, but if you are somebody who can continue to listen, I would just encourage you to, to just find a quiet space and listen to these and mourn with us the reality of what has happened in our country.
1927, John Carter was accused of striking two white women in Little Rock, Arkansas. He was seized by a mob, hung, and shot 200 times. The mob then threw Mr. Carter's mangled body across an automobile and led a 26-block procession past City Hall through Little Rock's black community and towards 9th Street, which was the black community's downtown center. At 7 p.m. at Broadway and 9th Street, between the black community's two most significant landmarks, Bethel African American Episcopal Church and the Mosaic Templars Building, rioting whites used pews seized from the church to ignite a huge bonfire on the trolley racks. They threw Mr. Carter's body on the raging fire, which burned for the next three hours. In 1893, in Paris, Texas, a 17-year-old black boy named Henry Smith was accused of killing a three-year-old white girl. He was met at the station on February 1st, 1893, by a mob of thousands of white people from across the state. Henry was placed on a carnival float and carried through the town to the county fairgrounds, where he was forced to mount a 10-foot-high platform. Henry was brutally tortured for nearly an hour in front of 10,000 people, and then burned alive. Henry pleaded his innocence until the end. In Hernando, Mississippi, in 1935, Reverend T.A. Allen tried to start a sharecropper's union among local impoverished and exploited black laborers. When white landowners learned that Reverend Allen was using his pulpit to preach to black community about unionization, they formed a mob, seized him, shot him many times, and threw him into the Cold Water River. In 1920, brothers Irvin and Herman Arthur worked on a white-owned farm where they suffered ongoing abuse. When the authors decided to leave and search for better working conditions, the farm owners tried to stop them with gunfire and then alleged that the authors had wounded them. Soon after Irwin and Herman were arrested and jailed, local whites began posting signs throughout town advertising the impending lynching. A mob of 3,000 gathered to watch as both men were tied to a flagpole at the fairgrounds, tortured and burned to death. During the lynching, the author's sisters were jailed under the pretense of protection, but then they were beaten and gang raped by more than 20 white men while in custody. After the lynching, the brothers' corpses were chained to a car and driven through Paris's black community for hours. A local sheriff involved in the case declared that the brothers had done nothing wrong. In 1921, a black elevator operator named Dick Rowland was arrested over a misunderstanding, and charges were soon dropped. Still, a white mob quickly gathered to lynch him. When the black community banded together to help the young man leave town, the mob indiscriminately attacked the prosperous local black residential and business district known as Greenwood. Over the next two days, the mob killed at least 36 black people, displaced many more, and destroyed that once vibrant community. No member of the mob was ever convicted. In 1906, Edward Johnson, a black man, was convicted of raping a white woman and sentenced to death by an all-white jury in Chattanooga, Tennessee. His attorneys appealed the case and won a rare stay of execution from the Supreme Court. In response, a white mob seized Mr. Johnson from the jail, which had been vacated by the sheriff and his staff, dragged him through the streets, hanged him from the second span of the Walnut Street Bridge, and shot him hundreds of times. Mr. Johnson used his last words to declare his innocence. Johnson was later cleared of the alleged rape. In 1906, two black men named Horace Duncan and Fred Coker were accused of rape in Springfield, Missouri. Both men had alibis confirmed by their employer. A mob seized them, hanged them from Gottfried Tower near the town square, and burned and shot their corpse while a crowd of 5,000 white men, women, and children watched. Newspapers later reported that both men were innocent of the rape allegation. In 
1917 in Dysburg, Tennessee, Lation Scott was subjected to a brutal and prolonged lynching after being accused of criminal assault. Thousands gathered near a vacant lot across the street from the downtown courthouse and children sat atop their parents' shoulders to get a better view as Mr. Scott's clothes were ripped off him with knives, as well as his skin. A mob tortured Lation Scott with a hot poker iron, gouging his eyes out, shoving the hot poker down his throat and pressing it all over his body, castrating him and burning him alive over a slow fire. Mrs. Scott's torturous killing lasted more than three hours. On August 13, 1955, also in Brookhaven, Mississippi, a white man shot and killed Lamar Smith, a 63-year-old black voting rights activist in broad daylight and in front of several witnesses on the courthouse lawn. No one was prosecuted for either man's murder. Today, Brookhaven bills itself as a home seeker's paradise, and the courthouse lawn bears no testament to the community's history of racial violence. Um, we're here with um, Amy Stowers Jones and Lerman Jones, and they are the parents of Lamont Stowers Jones. And um, this is their son, um, who they love, and they're going to share with us um, just their love for their son and tell us about his life. Um, well, first of all, um what I just have to say, you know, Lamont was a great kid, you know. Um, he um, played the keyboards for the church, uh, you know, and um, really was looking forward to going to college. Um, as a parent, when you lose a child, it's one of the hardest things that anybody can go through, um, especially when you have unanswered questions. Um, to this day, you know, um, we still got his uh, keyboard, you know, which is hard to, we had it engraved and whatnot with his name and stuff on it, but it's hard to look at it because, you know, he was a up and coming musician and where he was going to be at. Um, a lot of time when you listen to, well, when you read what the newspaper says about our son, a lot of it's so many false allegations, yeah. so many false allegations. Uh, Lamont was not, a drug head. He was not an alcoholic. He was a Denton High student that had a little bit of trouble, like all teenagers. But within the last six, seven months, he went from uh, a B and C student to almost straight A's. And so, you know, um, one of the hardest things for me and my wife was after his passing, um, there was a college called, and um, they said, uh, wanted to know why Lamont did not show up for his classes. That was very hard to tell them what happened. You know, it was one of the hardest things I ever had to do, because when they called me, you know, I'm kind of looking at the phone like, are you serious? You know, did you read the paper and whatnot? But that just shows you what he was, where he was at and where he was going with his life. Um, one thing that I, I can say, uh, I'm gonna bring up a little bit something if my wife think I get too harsh, just, just let me know, is throughout this whole ordeal that we have been going through, the hardest thing is the injustice hmm. of this investigation, the injustice. And the reason why I'm saying that is because of the fact that when you got a police department, the way they treat the minority community, the black community, okay, shall I say. Um, it's totally, totally bad. Um, I was sitting in um, Captain Barrett's office when he told me, uh, I would never forget this to, this to this day, when he told me, you know, one of the hardest thing I had to do was tell these white parents, I quote, this is his words, white parents, that their daughter is dead, is dead and got hit by a car. I had to leave my office, go over there and tell them. At that point, I'm like, y'all called me on the phone. Mm 
and told me. So what is the difference between telling uh, white parents that have given them the respect to tell them in person, but you can call us on the phone? You know, well, it's a waste of gas to come tell me, but you can drive all the way on the other side of town and tell, a, tell white parents that their kid got hit by a car. And, you know, I thought I was pretty upset about that. Absolutely. You know, um, thing that I would like to say to your audience is when you're looking at parents like us, now, granted, you got the Trayvon, Trayvon Martin, you got George Floyd, which everybody's talking about. These are well-publicized uh, cases where these lawyers that we need jumps on board because they know, truth be told, it's going to be a big payday for them. Hmm. But when you got families like us who's struggling just to get a lawyer because our case is not as known that's what's wrong with us to, uh, us today as in society i mean because of the fact that you got these lawyers who don't want to take cases because it's not publicized it's not uh where they can go in and say hey my name is such and such and i'm gonna jump on the bandwagon this has been one of the hardest things that i have ever had to do in my life is is try to find the backing, trying to get the voice out there on what's happening because um, the big me uh, media did not pick it up big enough. And that's what I want people to do. One, uh, uh, we do got a bunch of advocates out there that are doing stuff. And a lot of times, I'm just going to be frank with you, that you see our advocates out there and they wonder where the parents is at. Well, Threats keeps us away from pro protest. Uh, um, protests. Uh, we still have other kids. We got to protect them. Yes. We love what the the community and the advocates are doing. We love it, but we would love to be out there. But we also have to think about the protection of the other kids, the protection of my wife, the protection of me. Um, so. When you're looking at it, um, I just love hearing his name shout out at all the protests. I, I love hearing it. Uh, I love watching the videos and seeing the people that are having so, so, saying something about our son. Um, that what brings me joy, and I think it brings my wife's joy because you're looking at his story is not forgotten. People are standing behind us, and. That's one of the best things that I can say about some of the Denton community. Um, you have anything to say, Amy? My mom was baptized August 2010. Mm -hmm. Then he joined a male choir, and then he was on the Young Usher board. Um, he pretty much was turning his life around. I mean, he loved to be in the plays at the church and everything that he got that keyboard, he just loved his keyboard. He went, he, he did that keyboard like nobody's business. Mm. So, and I don't know why they trying to portray him like be a drug addict and everything else. Because I thought myself as a parent, okay, somebody said you smoking drugs. He, he personally took a drug test for me that Friday and it was negative, it was nothing in his system at all. So when they found him and the, I, Top to say drugs, I'm not understanding where they got that from. Hmm. I really would like to know where they got that from. But had I known that the autopsy wasn't going to be done correctly, I probably would have got another second opinion, a second opinion on autopsy. I wish I had did that. Because hmm. we after the autopsy, we buried him right after we got his body and everything. But I wish we would have just waited and find out, find out what, what was going on. Because when they say he, they found him in that water, he was not wet, period, in the back of the ambulance. First they told us they didn't see him in the water all that Monday night. Nobody told us that they was looking for him all day Monday. Tuesday, they say that we can't find him. He's not there. A few hours later, oh, we got him. But when we get there, he's already picked up. He's already in the back of the ambulance. He's already in the body bag. Everybody know the medic, medical examiner has to come and take pictures and everything else. But the medical examiner was pulling up at the same time we were pulling up. 
So what authorized him to, to take him out the water if he was in the water and everything else, put him back in the ambulance? That's what we're trying to find out. Why? He wasn't wet. If he, they just got him out of water, he's in the body bag, he's in the ambulance already. Why is not, there's not a water trail? Right. Why is there water in the ambulance on the floor, the body bag? Why, why was there no water? Absolutely. So I don't know if this was staged or, or what. But now we got new threats with Lamont, and he, he, I don't know if they're watching him. They have to be watching him because they have specific details on things that he's doing. You know, I, I, I won't say this. I just thought about something when uh, my wife was talking. Uh, when we're talking about injustice on how they do uh, investigations here in the Denton Sheriff's Department, there was a couple things that was never mentioned, okay? And I'm gonna say this, how can you say the cause of death of anybody without asking the parents questions? Now, um, on his autopsy report, there was a question on that autopsy report. Did he know how to swim? You know what it says? We don't know. This is the, the game warden's report. Yeah, the game warden report. Well, it just says, we don't know. You wanna know why? They didn't talk to the parents. What type of child was Lamont? We don't know. You don't know why? They didn't talk to the parents. How can you do a proper investigation without asking these simple questions to the parents? The scene was not roped off. People was walking around while they are looking for my son. Do you think that's a proper investigation? If people steadily walking around, we actually have documentation of a guy uh, a white guy uh, uh, taking picture while they were searching for him. It's not ripped off. I have never, I have never seen that. Never seen it. Uh, you know, it's just so much that the community does not know how um, Lamont's rights was violated. Uh, we as parents, our rights was violated, civil rights, but also. You gotta think about it. It was Lamont's rights was violated because of the fact he did not get the proper investigation. My fight here is about Lamont, about getting him what he what he deserved. He deserved a proper investigation. He deserved for them to get off their butts and go out there and do what they would do for any white person, black person, I don't care. But you just can't just throw it to the side. We have not received his clothes back. We have sent several uh, uh, requests to get his clothes back, his cell phone back. They would not give it to us. When Lamont's investigation went, you all know what? You even said on 48, uh, what is the best 48 or whatever it is? Yeah, first 48, where detectives called to let you know what's going on. With Lamont's uh, uh, investigation, there was not one phone call that I got from the sheriff's department. They don't even know where I live at. They may know the address, never been to our house. Never has talked to us. We had to call and initiate an interview at his office. They never came by here. They have never talked to my wife. They have never talked to my kids about Lamont's life. How can you have a proper investigation right. without asking about his past life. Did they go over to, 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 to the church and ask, uh, uh, wait, what type of piano player was this? Mm -hmm. Just for saying anything. No, they did not. In the report, Claire Barr said he went over to the high school and talked to the teachers. You all know what? Me being a caring parent, guess what I did? I went over to the high school and I asked them, did you talk to Texas Ranger Barnes? No, we don't know who that is. He didn't come in and talk to y'all about Lamont? No, he didn't. But yet, in his little report, it says, I went to the high school and talked to the kids. I specifically went to over to Denton High and asked them. And the kids that he were he was with, they were bullies. Yes. Yeah, and they he walk past here every day. I, they they think they got away with it. The names that keep coming up, they all walked this street together every single day, from here to here, from wow. down there to here, every day. Wow. Every day. And to confirm to this day. We really don't know who was with Mont. Mm -hmm. A lot of that information is based on, you know, we, the family's been given a plethora of names, and those names have changed over time, right? right? Mm -hmm. So to this day, that's one of the big problems is 
we really don't know who was with Mont. Um, these children have changed their stories. One witness has given no less than 12 different versions. Um, and these children were interviewed in police custody in the, in these, these children were interviewed by Texas Ranger Claire Barnes in police vehicles, technically in custody, mm. without legal representation, without notifying their parents. Mm. So, and, and, and this Texas Ranger Claire Barnes has a history. Uh, he has uh, a pending case right now for illegally holding a witness. Mm. Um, so there's, there's questions that we all know, you know, we heard uh, yesterday listening to protesters, we heard stories about uh, being held by police. And when we heard a young girl talk about how she was pulled over and asked so many times if she was drunk or high, and she knew she wasn't, but at the end she had to ask herself, wait, am I drunk or high? Because of the way that it, so we know that children can be led to say things and Absolutely. confused and intimidated. So to this day, that's part of the problem, right? We don't know who was with Mont. Who, how did he get to that bridge? We don't know because instead of being transparent, with the family, um, authorities have done their best to muddy the evidence, to, to complicate the evidence, to draw this out. Uh, um, and, and so that's part of the problem, is, is we don't know that truth. Um, I'm with my wife, Justice Answers. There's no peace when you have no answers. Mm -hmm. No peace as parents. As uh, far as I'm concerned, there's no peace as a community if you don't have answers. Absolutely. Because of the fact that that could happen to anybody's child. Yes. I think every child, I think they don't have to be a child. Any murder should be investigated properly. If you don't know, if, if you can't do it as a police department, call the FBI. Say, hey, we need to get somebody involved in there. Any death, period. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I always thought when they find a body, it's supposed to be publicized on the news. Or they supposed to cover it on the news channel. So why wasn't he covered over the news and asking if anybody knew anything? Especially with him being a child. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I can speak to that. And one of the main reasons is, as is often done in Denton, is there was a concerted effort to control information yeah. and keep it in the community. Um, press releases were fair, even though the family, even though the local authorities made no attempts to communicate directly with the family, they got their updates from local authorities through the newspaper. Mm -hmm. Because while the authorities weren't contacting the family to ask for information or provide it, they were very concerted and focused on getting very formalized narratives out to the press to make sure that, and what's interesting is, the press releases and information that were given to local press were different than those that were provided to press outside of Denton. So there was definitely a very concerted and focused effort to control the narrative. And I think that really speaks to this case is, Lamont Stowers Jones murder, his racially motivated murder was covered up by the Denton County Sheriff's Department in collusion with the Texas Rangers in order to cover up a story of a black child being murdered out of white vengeance. Mm. Right. And that is Lamont Stowers Jones' story. That is the story of his murder. And, and that is why this family still hasn't seen justice for the sake of optics. Yep. There's one thing that Jessica said uh, that brought to my attention. You know, um, she said how we got some of the information. I think it was pretty sad that we got um, the autopsy report that was in the newspaper first before we as the parents knew about it. Yeah. Someone actually called my wife. I was in Illinois <coughs> and saw it on Facebook. It's all on Facebook. Mm. But we are the parents. Don't you think before an autopsy, uh, should, the parents should be notified first before you put it out there to the community? 
you know. Because I had people asking me questions. I said, what are you talking about? And my wife, like she said, she was in Illinois visiting her mama grieving. And she called me, did you see the dent in paper? And I said, no. You want to look at Lamont's autopsy? I was like, what? Yeah. Sad. So that shows you they were trying to cover it up because they, we didn't have no clue about it. Yeah. Matter of fact, i tell you something else that uh, the public don't know. I don't know how true it is, but according to detail, uh, Captain Barnes, he said he didn't even know because I called and asked him. I said, why you didn't call him and tell us about the autopsy report? It's not out yet. It's in the newspaper. Are you serious? Wait a minute, you investigating Lamont's murder and you didn't know nothing about it? No, the newspaper don't know what they're talking about. The one and only time he called me back, he said, well, it is in the newspaper. The only time he has ever called my phone was to tell me that I, I was right about it being in the newspaper. Sad. As well, like I said, memory is coming back. Um, even after that happened, we had something going on. I actually talked to a Ditton police officer while we was leaving the game. As a so-called was looking for Lamont, he didn't say nothing to me. Right after I walked away from his car, I think it was less than four minutes later, that's when the Denton Police Department called me and told me about Lamont. Hmm. But yet I just talked to your officer and he was in his squad car, he got all these radios, so I'm about 100% sure he knew right. what was going on, but he could not tell me anything right then or say, well, the parents just left the basketball game, they're going home. You might want to tell them what's going on with their son. No. No. And, and, and you know, for even for them to even say that they did not know who Lamont was or who his parents was. Yeah, they said uh, they said they ran his name. They there was no contact information, but he had been in jail for four months for hanging with the wrong boys and at the pawn shop, whatever. When he went to jail for, but how can he not have contact information if he was just in jail? That's why I'm not understanding that. Yeah. Also, their own their own police reports show that from day one. They, in their own records, they have his name written down. Right. They knew the identity of the person they were supposedly looking for day mm -hmm. one, and they did not contact the family. So what about the bullying that was happening? Well, I think it's over a fight that didn't hide. Somebody posted, one of the parents posted the fight with the white kid on Facebook that didn't hide. And threats were being made from there on Facebook. So we go to the school to talk to the principal about the threats and, and the, everything threatening his life and everything. The principal pushed us off. He said we didn't make an appointment and he did not hear our complaints in the school that day. And that is documented. Yes. Uh, where he said that he did not have time to talk well, to the mayor. He has been fired. Yes. For saying the N-word inside the yep. school. He sure has. Yep. Uh, and has a long-standing history of being a racist. My my children but will it, attest. It's apparent that he saw the Facebook page because he asked me when I walked in school, who is such and such? But you're asking me who these people are on the post, but you didn't take my complaint on my son being threatened yeah. over that fight. Curiosity is when the police department said that they so-called called didn't high school, but then high school did not have our phone numbers, my phone number or my wife's phone number, to find out who Lamont was uh, or to get in touch with his parents. Come on now. If one of my kids get in trouble, I bet you know how to call my phone then. But you said you called the school to get uh, the parents' information, but the school said they didn't have it. But, of course, we're always talking about the principal that did get fired. Mm -hmm. Maybe he didn't do it. Maybe he is a, ra uh, a racist because he did say the N-word. <clears throat> but there's ways they can get in touch with them. Now. Because yeah. what happens is that, you know, kids are kids and they do things. And it's like for a white kid, it's just, we're going to, and I've seen it plenty of times, drunk driving white kids, you know, drugs, all the things, but they can be redeemed. They're redeemable because they're white. And so a black kid will do some of the same things and they're just criminalized and demonized and anything that befalls them is their fault 
and black people, black children cannot be redeemed because it's set up to where they just become a part of the system that they can never be, you know, redeemed from. And they don't get the opportunity, they don't get the privilege of having youthful indiscretion um, as, as if they're not a million white kids that have, or millions of white kids that have the same youthful indiscretions. But they can go forward, have a career, have a life, be redeemed from their jail time. Um, and I've seen that. I've seen that in this community with white kids that I know that have fought the police on the square, that have done absolutely foolish things, but they get to live to see another day and they get to be okay, whereas black kids have to walk this fine line and they have to be perfect, which they're not going to be. And they're dealing with the weight of oppression and how the world sees them. And they make mistakes just like any kid because they're a kid. And not to, not to say that there aren't consequences for that, but death should not be a consequence. Right. Death shouldn't be a consequence because he didn't kill anybody. Mm -hmm. He didn't do anybody any physical harm. Death should not have been the consequence for him being a child. Mm -hmm. Right. We have what the final findings was accidental death. But where did they come up with that at? Hmm. Wow. Sad. All, all based off of witness statements who they themselves admit lied. Supposedly they they couldn't supposedly they couldn't identify that's one thing they said over and over, they couldn't contact the family because witnesses lied. Mm -hmm. Because witnesses lied and didn't say who he was, didn't say who they were with, right? Mm -hmm. But their entire case is built off of statements from these witnesses that they ruled accidental, but supposedly the case was drawn out so long because these witnesses lied and and so basically they just decided what the truth was. They decided the narrative that worked for them. And some of this is, um, from what I understand, connection that, that these children have with people who are in authority. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and, and not only that, well, so there's connections between children that we suspect are involved in authorities, mm -hmm. right? The children that are being connected to this as being present, what I find interesting, and, and maybe you guys can, can speak to this more, mm -hmm. are three black children excuse me, two black children, uh, one Hispanic child, uh, perhaps biracial. I think he's Hispanic and black, if mm. I remember that correctly. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And all of them have histories uh, associated with um, the law. And so what I see are th three children who were easily manipulated mm. and intimidated to provide a narrative that worked for local authorities. What is also interesting is all of these children have disappeared. Hmm. They have withdrawn from school. They no longer live in the communities. They're gone. Hmm. Where are they? Why did they feel like they needed to leave the community? All of them. All of them. And, and, and I applaud you because you guys are just speaking the facts. Like, you're not hiding anything. You're not hiding anything about Lamont. Um, you know, you as parents held him accountable for things that he did. Like, you've been completely transparent. You're not trying to paint any kind of narrative. You're just telling the story. It is what it is, mm -hmm. which definitely speaks to your integrity and credibility more so. Mm -hmm. Because you guys have been completely open. Like, nothing, you know, you've been completely open. You just want justice for your son. That's it. It's just, it's, it's just simple. It's just simple that you just want justice for your son. Mm -hmm. That's it. All I want is justice. Because um. whoever this is, they think they got away with it from the text message that my son has gotten. It, it's really remarkable. So as they're talking about, you know, they reported threats against Mont's life before he was murdered. Um, you know, now their other son is, is being threatened and, you know, we had to stand outside of the police station and chant and force the police to take a report, right, um, to get them to take it seriously. And so you compare that to, you know, it's a year after, after, the, after this boy, has, his brother's been murdered. Mm -hmm. He's at school and some, some kids have said some really ugly things about his brother's memory. And on the phone with a friend, he verbally expressed his frustration, made a blanket statement 
and this girl reported it to her mother. It was then reported to the police. The police came. They talked to uh, Ramon. They there was a. Uh, the officer wrote a report, an incident report, and noted in his report that there was no credible threat made. Mm. There was no. The, they're saying Lermond did not make a credible right. threat. He was right. just expressing. Right. Okay. He was just expressing himself. Right. There's a difference between making a blanket statement and and making a threat that is meant to intimidate, exactly. meant to threaten. Right. Yeah. The officer made it clear in his incident report that Lermond did not make a terrorist threat. There were no charges filed, nothing, right? And that's the student resource officer? That's a Denton PD. Okay. Okay. That report was then provided to the, the school resource officer. Okay. So we get to this meeting, and they want Lermond to start speaking, but they're referencing all these documents. And so I say, well, before he speaks, if we're referencing documents, I think it's fair that everyone here at the table see these documents you're referencing. Right. So let's take a look at those. Well, I look at this document, and they have already typed up a three-page you know, document saying, based on the statements of Lormond in our meeting today, wow. we recommend... And he hadn't said anything And he hadn't yet. said anything hadn't yet. They had already criminalized him. Already had the template. And they're referencing this police report, and I'm saying, wait a minute, your policy here says if a child makes a terroristic threat, and they define in the school policy, they define terroristic threat based on Texas Penal Code. Well, guess what? According to Texas Penal Code, which is what that officer is referencing when he came here, Armand did not make a terroristic threat. So we had to go in there, but 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 in their minds, once again, and these are people who claim to care about Lermond, and quite frankly, I, I believe them. I think they do care about Lermond, but their minds, they had already criminalized this child without even really truly processing their own literature and their own policies. And again, to see this piece of paper to say, based on your statements today, but they'd never let him speak. That's wild. It is wild. And and so, you know, they had an attorney present. They didn't tell the family they were going to have an attorney present, which I also found incredibly yeah. um, inappropriate. Yes. Um, and so these, these actions where uh, it's just a propensity to criminalize black children. Yeah. An automatic propensity towards this, and it's built into our school system. Yeah. A school system that's already failed this family and was ready to punish and criminalize a second child and take away, as you heard, he just graduated. Yeah. They were going to put that on the line. Um, and I, I just, personally, as a witness to all this, I, I couldn't fathom how that became normalized. Yeah. But that has been this family's experience over and over and over again. At what point do they get to just be Denton residents? Hmm. At what point do they get to just be a family and send their children to school yeah. without worrying that because their child had emotion, they're going to be criminalized? Right. Emotion about something that was said about his brother who was murdered and the case is still not resolved. Like, anybody would respond to that. Yes. And anybody, yeah, anybody would respond to that. And that gets grace. That should get grace. Yeah, you would hope. Because let's look at the kid who made the statements um, that antagonized mm -hmm. him. And I'm sure that the way that was handled was probably completely different. We still don't know anything about right. that. Right, right. Yeah. Well, thank you all. Thank you both. Because mm -hmm. even though I know you want justice for your son, every time you have to retell this story, mm -hmm. it's like you have to defend yourself. Even though, you know, we believe you and you're safe with us. It's like you're basically you're you're on the witness stand mm -hmm. trying to defend your son's character versus um, getting the justice that he deserves for being murdered. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's like he's on trial um, instead of the people who killed him being on trial. <laughs> and your questions are legitimate. The, they deserve answers. And if there was tr true transparency. There would be no need to delete social media comments. There would be no reason why you shouldn't be being contacted when you call. Mm -hmm. And so I want to thank you 
because I know that every time you guys have to share this story, it comes at a great cost to your heart because it's just another reminder that you haven't received justice. And so I, I just want to acknowledge that. And I, I want to acknowledge that our community, we failed you. We failed you, the black community in Denton, we failed you because we should have been out on the square yelling and screaming for justice. And this story, it just kind of disappeared. Mm -hmm. And I just want to make a commitment to, to you that, you know, Jessica and I, I know we're on that square and Jessica has been really doing a major work and I applaud you for that. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you. Mm -hmm. Um, for the work that you're doing. But every time we step on a, any kind of platform, we will say the name of Lamont Stowers Jones. And I will continue to say, and people don't like to hear this because in their mind, he's a man. A 16-year-old white boy can be a, a kid. A 16-year-old black boy is gonna be a man. He was a baby. He was a child. Um, and so we will continue to say his name. And as far as we, as much as, as it pertains to us, we're going to continue to put his story out there. Um, we're going to continue to direct resources to you all um, because we failed you. We failed you. And I, I just think that you need to hear that because you probably feel it, but nobody's substantiating your feelings. And so then you start feeling like you're crazy. You're not crazy. Every feeling that you have, you can own 100%. Mm -hmm. And this community, the law enforcement officials, the school, we failed you. And the fact that you guys continue to persevere and move forward is just astounding. It's astounding because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve what you're, what, what, what you're continuing to produce in your family. What you can, how you continue to spur your children on, how you continue to live and thrive. We don't deserve that from you. We deserve your tears, your crying out. We deserve all the things that, that injustice produces. But you've given us so much more and, and we failed you. Thanks for listening to part two of this episode. If you haven't listened to part one, make sure to go back and take a look in your feed. If you're looking for more information on what we discuss, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast, for $5, you can vote for future topics, listen to unedited interviews, submit questions, and more. Check us out at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. Remember that all the money that you give in these first 10 episodes will all go to the Denton African American Scholarship Foundation. On our next episode, we will be discussing the Tulsa Race Massacre. We'll leave you with this quote from Brian Stevenson. You ultimately judge the civility of a society not by how it treats the rich, the powerful, the protected, and the highly esteemed, but by how it treats the poor, the disfavored, and the disadvantaged.